The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I want to introduce you to a ship. It's called the United States Coast Guard Polar Star. And the Polar Star is a unique ship uh, in the Coast Guard's fleet. Um, it's actually one of their oldest ships. And in so many ways, it is outdated. It is a, a giant rust bucket in a sense, but it is a very important ship. It primarily services McMurdo Station, which is in Antarctica. And this particular station in, in Antarctica is a place where for months at a time, about a thousand or so researchers will spend their lives, will live there, conducting experiments, collecting data that they can only conduct there in Antarctica. Well, the only way to access McMurdo Station with the adequate supplies that are needed to make it possible for a thousand people to survive in the middle of the South Pole, the, the only way to get there is you need a ship to break the ice on the way to uh, arrive to this station so that a big, large tanker can come in behind it with all the supplies needed. Here's a picture of the, of the uh, Polar Star. Here's what it looks like. And I mean, when I first saw this picture, you almost think that it's on land. Uh, but this is a ship. It's plowing through ice, and you can see the small canal it's creating, the small channel it's creating right there behind it. And so the idea is it plows its way through and clears the way for another ship to go and follow them behind to deliver the supplies. Now, different nations have icebreakers like this particular ship, but I want you to think about that as far as how this boat was designed. This is a ship that isn't just designed to itself be unsinkable, although it certainly is designed to not sink, but it's a ship that's designed in such a way that it's to enable and clear the path so that other ships can navigate through difficult waters and not sink. Uh, in this series, Unsinkable, we've been kind of using as a running metaphor how in so many ways life is like a ship navigating through icy waters. And each one of us navigating the difficulties of life, sometimes unexpected turns, sometimes life looks like calm seas that are beautiful and other times there are icebergs and things that are threatening us and, and attempting to harm us and rob us of the purpose God has for our lives. And so we've been asking the question, what does it look like to have a faith that's unsinkable? That no matter what's happening around us, no matter the circumstances in our lives, what does it look like to have a faith that persists and lasts? And so in week one of our series, Unsinkable, we talked about this idea of truth. And truth, what we mean by truth is that truth is this reality outside of us. Sometimes, especially in our world today, when we think that truth is inside of us, we need to look inside of us to find our own truth. What the scripture teaches is that truth is not something that you take your feelings and you look down deep inside and determine what's true for you. But truth is real. It's outside of you. It's objective. It stands. In fact, we don't conform and mold the truth to match our feelings. We match our feelings to conform to truth. And then we talked about in week two, we talked about who God is. How God is the creator of everyone and everything and how God is at the center of the universe, which means we are not. And so God is ruling and reigning over the universe and we are his creation designed and made by him to bring him honor and glory. And then last week, part three, we talked about the gospel, the message at the heart of Christianity, this good news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to rescue and redeem us. 
that in a world that's full of religions that each propose their own path up the mountain to God, some religions saying if you do more good than bad, you'll get to heaven. Some religions saying if you do these certain rituals, then God will approve of you. If you worship in this proper way or follow this particular path, then God will accept you. In a world with all these religions, here comes Jesus saying, no, 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 you can't make it up the mountain. God has come down to you. And he has made salvation available to anyone who will call on his name and trust that he did everything that needed to be done so that we can be made right with God. And that leads us to part four, where we're talking about in Acts chapter one, the mission that Jesus gave his followers. And in so many ways, the mission on your life, if you're a follower of Christ, your mission is not all that different from the United States Polar Star. That there's this calling on your life, not just to go through life and not sink. I hope you do that. And this series where we're trying to help each other not sink, have a faith that's unsinkable. Well, that's not all that's the calling on your life. No, you're called to something so much greater. There's a calling on your life to navigate through life and clear the way so that more and more and more people can navigate through and experience a faith themselves that's unsinkable. To pave the way for others to come in behind us and to come to know the grace, the love, and the redemption that we have found in Jesus. And so that brings us to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verse 8 here in a moment. Uh, before we do that, just to set the context for what we're about to read, these are Jesus' final words. His final words before he leaves his followers. At this point, he's already died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples and he's giving them their marching orders. He's leaving them with this one last thought before he ascends to his father in heaven. Here's what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus goes to his followers and he makes a statement. Listen, there is a power you're going to experience that right now you are powerless to do what I'm calling you to do and to be who I'm calling you to be, but I'm going to send my spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, everything's going to change. You will be my witnesses. You're going to tell people everywhere about me, starting in Jerusalem, then to the greater region, Judea, then to the neighboring region, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the nations of the earth. And so what I want to do is I want to follow along. Go ahead and grab your notes. Here's the first question we need to ask. If we're going to understand the implications of this verse, we need to ask the question. It's on your notes. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? There's a whole lot hinging on how we understand who the Holy Spirit is. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, who is he? So let's ask that question. In your notes, follow along there. Here's the, here's the first blank for your notes. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. This isn't going to tell you everything, but it's going to give you a good picture. The first one is that he is God. The Holy Spirit, he is God. Acts chapter 5, it's this incredible story. It's, it's quite shocking and in some ways disturbing. You should check it out sometime. But essentially, someone lies about what they're bringing as an offering to the leaders of the church. This couple, they, they try and make it seem as though they're giving more just to try and make themselves look good in the, in the sight of the others. And the leaders of the church don't just say, hey, you lied to us. They say, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And in the next sentence, they say, you have lied to God. In other words, there in Acts 5, we see the Holy Spirit and God equated. They're, they are the same. The Holy Spirit is God. 
All throughout the, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Spirit of God is not described as lesser than the Father or lesser than Jesus. No, He is God, co-equal with God. He has always existed. In, in Genesis chapter 1, we read in the first few verses of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. So the Holy Spirit, He is God. The second one in your outline is that He is the third person of the Trinity. Write that down. The third person of the Trinity. There are two important words in that description there. The word person and the word trinity. Let's talk about those two words. By person, I don't mean that the Holy Spirit is a human. I mean that he has personhood. He is not an it. Uh, sometimes we confuse the Holy Spirit and think that he is some like goosebumps we get in the room or, you know, when we really like a worship song, like we have like this tingly feeling inside. No, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force. He is a person. Just as we would say Jesus is a person or the Father is a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. I wouldn't say about my son Hudson, you know, I love it, right? No, I say I love him. He's a person with personality. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now let's talk about that word. The word Trinity, interestingly enough, does not occur in the Bible. It's not a word that's from the scriptures. It's a word that theologians have used to describe and capture the nature of God. That when we look at the Bible and we see who God is, we see this, that God has eternally existed and always will exist as one God in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not three gods, he's one God. One God who has always existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, the Father is God. At the same time, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Father. They're distinct persons. And this is something that has been confusing humankind for a long time. So if you're confused, welcome to the club, okay? It's okay. It is fitting for God to be beyond our comprehension. I mean, if we could understand all the complexities of God and say, got it, nailed it, right? Then he really wouldn't be all that big. And so he is the third person of the Trinity. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the next one in your outline. The Holy Spirit, he indwells Christians. He indwells Christians. When a person puts their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God comes to reside in us to make us more like Christ. He works in us. 1 Corinthians 6 makes an astounding statement. The Apostle Paul says that you as believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. In the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God's special presence dwelt. When we get to the New Testament, that temple has been replaced by Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate temple, the one who truly, the presence of God dwelt bodily in Jesus. And then when Jesus dies and is risen from the dead, he sends his Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is building a new temple, the church where we are the ones who house the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, coming to live in us, which leads us to the next blank. He produces the character of Jesus in us. The Holy Spirit, this is what he does. He produces the character of Jesus in us. Galatians 5 is this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, virtues like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These attributes that describe the nature of Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's like. It's the Holy Spirit who produces this fruit in us. He is the one who goes to work in our hearts to make us more like Jesus. Here's the next one. He teaches us, John 14, 26. In John 14, Jesus tells his followers, listen, I'm going to leave. 
I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send my spirit, and he's going to teach you and remind you of everything I taught you. So the Holy Spirit, he teaches us. The next one, he convicts us of sin. He convicts us of sin, John 16, 8. In fact, uh, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, whether you realize it happened like this or not, at one point in your life, whether you were five years old or 10 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old, if you're a follower of Jesus, there came a time in your life where the Holy Spirit alerted you to your need for a Savior, where God worked in your heart and helped you to see with your eyes you needed what Jesus offers. And the Holy Spirit, He convicts us of sin. He draws us to a place where we need God's grace and forgiveness. And that's what God uses to help us to see just how amazing what Jesus offers us truly is. He convicts us of sin. And then the next one, He seals our salvation. The Holy Spirit, he seals our salvation. What do I mean by that? Well, when a person puts their faith in Jesus and they have truly trusted in Jesus, they are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 1. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of that inheritance to the praise of God's glory. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've trusted in Jesus, there is nothing you can do to get you unsaved. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is, he's not going to seep out of you. You're not going to go from being a temple of the Holy Spirit to not being a temple of the Holy Spirit. He seals you with his Spirit, guaranteeing the inheritance he has for you. It's 100% guaranteed because of what Jesus has done. Then here's the next one. He gives us gifts for ministry. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts for ministry. Uh, there are certain things that you're good at that God has given to you to be used for ministry. Certain attributes that he's leveraged your personality to equip you to do things like be generous, have faith, teach, encourage others, have hospitality towards others. This is the gifting of God's spirit in our lives for the work of ministry. And that brings us to Acts 1, what we find out the Holy Spirit empowers our mission. That's your next blank. The Holy Spirit empowers our mission. Acts 1.8, it says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus, uniquely here in this conversation with his disciples, he doesn't necessarily tell them what to do. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he tells them who they're going to become. He says, you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses. I want you to think about what a witness does. Uh, a witness sees something or hears something and experiences it and then is willing and able to give testimony to what they experienced. They can give an account of what they saw. And I want you to think about what these disciples had experienced. These people had been with Jesus for years. I think about one of the first moments and encounters they would have had with Jesus. Uh, you read about it in the Gospels. These disciples, many of them are fishermen. So they're out fishing, having a horrible day fishing. I don't know if you've ever been out at sea and it's a horrible day of fishing. It can become quite difficult. But they, they, they did this for a living. Their livelihood's at stake. So they're out having a rough day fishing. And Jesus comes and sees them and says, hey, try the other side. Like throw the net on the other side. If you think about it, these are professional fishermen. And this is what they do. You, you got to think, they're thinking, really, Jesus? Like, you don't think we've tried that? Oh, the other side. Oh, who would have thought of that? 
And so these disciples, they give it a shot, they take the net, they throw it over the other side, and they haul in a catch that is overwhelming. And from that moment on, they're alerted to the reality that Jesus isn't just like everybody else. And then they start following Jesus and see the miraculous. I mean, they see Jesus do things they never dreamed of ever seeing. They see him teach in front of crowds of thousands of people. And ultimately, it leads them to a place where they see Jesus delivered over to the religious leaders to be crucified. He's buried in a tomb on a Friday. And then three days later on a Sunday morning, he rises up from the grave and appears to his disciples. And they see the one who was once dead, now alive in front of them, and they share a meal with him. Think about what they've experienced. Their entire lives have been marked by this story of following Jesus. And now he's saying to them, okay, all that you've seen and heard, it's go time, boys. All that you've experienced, all that I've trained into you and taught you, all that you've experienced, you're going to go and give testimony, starting in Jerusalem, out to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you think about that, for 11 uneducated, for 11 men who, my goodness, all that they knew was this particular region, what they knew of what it meant to go to the ends of the earth was the Roman government that had power and authority over them. What they just experienced was their leader delivered over to be crucified. And Jesus just told them, you're going to be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, out throughout the entire region of Judea, the surrounding region of Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is an overwhelming task. Except for two details. Jesus says, number one, my spirit is going to empower you. This is God's mission, and God will see to it that the mission gets accomplished. His spirit will empower them to be his witnesses. And the second detail is so easy to miss. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses uh, in that verse. So this originally written in Greek, uh, this particular document, a guy named Luke, he documents this story of the early church, these early Jesus followers and how the message of Christianity spread from this tiny little movement within Judaism to this really uh, global movement across major cities in the Roman Empire. So this document of the, called the book of Acts that gives a historical account for the spread of Christianity. Here the author Luke, he's, he's writing in Greek, our English translation of it doesn't capture exactly the details that's being portrayed here. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, but the word you there is actually plural. He's talking not just to one person, he's talking to all of his disciples. Uh, I learned when I uh, went away to college in Gainesville, when you go uh, north in Florida, it gets more south, okay? And I, I learned when I was in Gainesville in college, uh, in meeting some friends of mine and, and people at the church I was a part of, there is a word that Southern English actually has an advantage over the rest of the English-speaking population. I mean, in the South, they have a perfectly good word to give a plural version of you that we just don't have in our English, and it's the word y'all, okay? It's the word y'all, okay? That word is, is so helpful, and I started using it. It was great. I was the only, like, Cuban guy come back home to my aunt, use the word y'all. It's wonderful. And so, I, I'm being up in Gainesville. You hear the word y'all. This is what Jesus is saying. He's talking to all of his disciples. He's not saying, hey, Peter, listen, uh, this is on you, bro. Uh, my spirit's going to come upon you, and you got to go. Uh, ends of the earth, go. No, he says, you all, 
Y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon y'all. And y'all will be my witnesses. Uh, someone told me in the earlier service, uh, you actually need to say all y'all. Like that's the double version of it. Y'all will receive power. Here's the, here's the idea. This is why this is such good news. Because there are things that I'm terrible at that many of you are brilliant at. There are blaring weaknesses in each of us. I mean, there are things about us that we struggle. And there are things about us that we excel. God has gifted us in different ways. So when we come together and we all embrace this mission together, not as lone rangers, not as people trying to go out and do this thing on our own, but when we as a team answer and fulfill this identity that Jesus has given us as his witnesses, we have the Spirit of God empowering us together to fulfill the mission God has called us to. That is a powerful force. That's a powerful army of people cooperating together, leaning on each other, complementing each other's gifts for the sake of the mission. And so what we're going to do in the next few moments is we're going to talk a little bit about what that would look like here in our own version of Jerusalem, in our South Florida, where we find ourselves. But before we take some time and focus in on our Jerusalem, in our South Florida, I just want to alert us to the need around the world. I want to give us a status update on the ends of the earth that Jesus said to his disciples, we will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. In your notes, the next blank there, the status of our mission, write this down. The current world population is 7.67 billion people. 7.67 billion people. That's such a large number, we can't even wrap our minds around it. 7.67 billion people. The total number of people groups that make up that 7.67 billion people is 17,094. That's your next blank. 17,094 people groups. You may be asking, what is a people group? Defined there, there in your notes, a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Uh, let me put it in different terms. A people group is often defined by a group of people who share a common ethnic and language uh, unity. So people who have a similar heritage and language. People who have a same ethnicity, same heritage, same language. And by having that shared common, those common characteristics, it's different than saying, you know, the nation of France or different than saying Libya. It's different than saying uh, all these different countries, United States. A people group is a group that's often within a nation that shares a common ethnicity and language, sometimes called an ethno-linguistic group. And if the gospel, if the message of Jesus is going to go into that people group, that means that someone needs to come and bring the message of Jesus in a way and communicate it in a way that that culture and language will understand. And so sometimes that means translating the Bible into a new language, into a language that's someone's heart language that they speak. And so a people group is that, I want to give you another definition that's important for us to understand, an unreached people group. What is an unreached people group? An unreached people group is a group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. Uh, sociologists, theologians, they often use uh, the figure about 2%. If a group of people, an ethno-linguistic group, has less than 2% of people who are followers of Christ, they're often classified as an unreached people group. That means that there aren't enough Christians living, if any, there aren't, in some cases, there aren't any Christians living among that people group that are able 
to share the message of Jesus with the people who live among them. Here's the next blank in your outline, and this is where it gets a little bit staggering. So of the 17,000 total people groups on planet Earth, there are 7,165 people groups that are unreached. 7,165. The population in these unreached people groups, if you take that 7,165, that translates to 3.19 billion people. And just to kind of make sure we, we feel the weight of that, um, what we mean by an unreached person, so these 3.19 billion people, here's their situation. It's different than your coworker that doesn't believe. It's different than your family member that doesn't believe in Jesus. Different than your neighbor that doesn't believe in Jesus. You see, because your neighbor or your family member, your coworker, they have you in their life. And you know, if you're a follower of Christ, you know the message of Jesus and you can tell them. And many of you have told them. But we're talking about 3.19 billion people who unless something significant changes, they will be born live their entire lives, grow old, and die, and never once hear, and never once meet someone who can tell them that God so loved the world, that he gave their one and only son, gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 3.19 billion people who, unless something changes, will spend their entire life without hearing the message of Jesus because they simply don't have access to it. And Jesus gives to his followers the mission to get this message out to the farthest reaches of the earth. So that's why men like William Carey and Hudson Taylor, it's why women like Lottie Moon and Elizabeth Elliot, missionaries who have gone before us, have given their lives to going to unreached peoples who if nobody goes, then they'll never hear. And so what I want to do before we continue our time of teaching, I want to just pause and pray here in a moment before we wrap up our teaching time and then we'll pick back up. But I just want to pause and pray for two things. Pray for those who are unreached. But second, I want to pray that God would call and stir up some among us to go to the nations, to go to the ends of the earth. Let me pray. Father, we just... Hear these numbers and they are staggering and they're overwhelming. But Lord, you've said that you are sending your spirit to your people and indeed you have sent him. We have the Holy Spirit in us and you have called us to be witnesses. And so Lord, we pray for those who are right now living their lives with no access to the greatest news in the world. That you love them so much that you would give everything for them. So Lord, we pray that we would see a change, that that wouldn't stay the same. Lord, help it to not just sit well with us. Help us to realize that's not okay. And Lord, would you begin to stir in some among us. Lord, would you rise up out of our church, men and women who are willing to go, who say, yes, here I am, send me. I will share this news wherever you send me. Lord, stir up a movement from our church, from the churches of South Florida, that the message of Jesus would shine brightly to the nations. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I want to ask the question then, if that's the status of the world, 
What does it look like right here in South Florida? You know, we live in a global city, which is one of the most incredible things about living in South Florida. Uh, We live in a city that has reach, not just here, but all over. Uh, Just this past month, I spoke to a gentleman who is connected to our church who lives in Qatar. He works in Qatar and stays connected to our church. And uh, he's there for a few years uh, for work. And I got to talk to him, connected with him. I spoke to someone a few weeks before that who lives in Norway, who's connected to our church. Um, She lives in an area where there are no thriving churches. And so she watches West Pines online as a part of our family in that way. Spoke to someone, I've been speaking to someone for the past few months. Uh, Our staff has been working with her. Someone from our church, a woman that is answering God's call in her life to go and be a missionary in the Czech Republic uh, that we're going to be sending out. And we're excited and praying for her. And so here's the cool thing about South Florida. Is South Florida touches so many parts of the world. I I think of so many of you who run businesses or a part of organizations that are headquartered here in South Florida or have uh, a team here in South Florida that operates in Latin America, in the Caribbean. I mean, South Florida is this hub. And so we believe with a strong conviction that if you can transform South Florida with the gospel, you can transform the entire region, that it influences the rest of the world, that something happening here, if God could stir up a movement here, it would change everything. And so what I want to do is I want to give us a couple of practical action steps that we can take right here in South Florida. And so here's the first thing. Write this down in your notes. This is your next blank. I want to encourage all of us to take a step in. Take a step in. You are a part of a larger whole, the church. You're a part of a larger whole, the church. Uh, You know, if you read through the book of Acts, It's fascinating. Uh, You read this book, and one of the ways you could summarize this is it's the message of Jesus goes to a new city where people then from different backgrounds, some wealthy, some poor, some speak one language, some speak another, some have one ethnicity, some have a different ethnicity. The gospel goes to that particular city, and people believe in Jesus, and strangers become family. And people who have different backgrounds start to share their lives together. Uh, And they start opening up and they start to be on mission together there in that community. This is the pattern of the book of Acts. The church is this family. I I love how Jesus calls the church. He describes the church as his bride. That he is the faithful groom. We are the bride. And he looks at us. He views us as his bride. I think of how I view my bride. how How much I love my wife. That's a small little drop in the bucket compared to Jesus' love and passion for his bride. I mean, Jesus loves his church. He gave his life for his church. And we can't fall into the trap and temptation of reducing or minimize the significance of the family of faith. And so I want to encourage all of us to take a step in. You're a part of a larger whole, the church. A few ways that you can do that. Number one, uh, you can serve. Find a place to serve. Here at uh, our church, there's a number of ways that you can be involved and serve Uh, In fact, on your Get Connected card that's in the chair back in front of you or behind you, there's a list of ways that you can be involved here. Uh, One of the people that serve us every single week that I am particularly grateful for is our coffee team. All right, anybody else grateful for the coffee team, okay? Just round of applause for the coffee team, okay? See, you guys are getting the caffeinated version of Justin instead of the decaffeinated version because of our coffee team. And these, these individuals, it's something so small and so simple 
But they serve us. It's one small way they can show love and serve the body of Christ. I think of the people who are over in our kids' ministry, and every week they take care of our kids. Of my little boys, I know that they're going to go, and they're going to learn about Jesus. They're going to be prayed for, cared for, and that me and my wife will be able to sit together in worship and trust that. I'm so grateful for those who serve at our church and our kids' ministry, who give their time to pour into the next generation. I, I think of all the people who serve in different ways. If you haven't found a way yet to serve at your church, find a way. Take a step in. Here's another thing that we can do to uh, take a step in and be a part of the larger whole is I'm letting you know right now in two months, in two months in January, we're going to be unveiling, rolling out a new and exciting small groups strategy that is going to be so incredible. We've already gotten the ball rolling on this in many ways. But in January, we're going to put a full court press on. And we're going to let you know we want you to be connected to a group. Groups are this environment where this larger gathering becomes small. And you sit in a circle rather than in rows. You share life together. You talk through scripture together. You pray for each other. And it's a time of instruction from God's word. And so we want you, put you on notice in a couple months Decide now, join a group, make it a priority, find a way to get connected deeper into the body of Christ. And then you might be saying, well, I already do that. I'm already serving. I'm already part of group. Great. Here's your, here's your way to step in. Be an icebreaker. Make a way, clear the way for others to get connected as well. Let us be a church that it's not just the people with name tags at the doors that are greeting and welcoming people, but may we be a church that whether we have a name tag and a job description or not, we're the kind of people who are looking for new faces, introducing ourselves and saying, welcome. What's your name? Let's be the kind of church that shows the hospitality, warmth, and welcome that God has shown us. Help others take a step in. Here's the next action step. Take a step out. That's your second thing on your notes. Take a step out. The church is Jesus' plan for taking the gospel to all nations. The church is Jesus' plan for taking the gospel to all nations. One pastor I know, he says it like this. He says, the church that shines brightest at home will shine farthest to the nations. That when our light is shining brightly, especially in a global city like Miami, Fort Lauderdale, when we shine brightly here, it shines farthest to the nations. Find a way to take a step out. Here are some practical ways you can do that. Uh, we are entering a season right now, the Christmas season where our entire culture is turning their attention to Christmas. It's going to consume everybody. It's going to be all that we think about. We're going to get home and we're making plans. We're purchasing flights and preparing for family to come in. And as people turn their attention to Christmas, this is the best opportunity we have in the entire year to seize the season to invite people into church. To invite people to come to church who otherwise may not come. Let's not miss this opportunity in this season to be on mission. To find ways to tell people what the message of Jesus, the message of Christmas is really about. Let's take advantage of this season. So here's what I want you to do on your notes. Uh, I want you to write down the names of three people that you know that aren't currently in church. Three people that you know that aren't currently in church. Write their names down. Begin praying for them looking for ways to invite them over this Christmas season. And I'm just going to let you know, over the next few weeks, we are going to bombard you with ways that you can invite people. 
I mean, there'll be ways you can do it with social media. There'll be ways that you can practically give something to someone to invite them. There's going to be invite cards. There's going to be events you can share online. There's going to be so many tools that we're just going to equip all of us to be able to be inviting, welcoming people in to shine a bright light this Christmas season. Another way that you can take a step out and be a part of the mission of Jesus is you can hop on our website, westpines.org missions. Take a look at the mission trips we have scheduled for 2020. Uh, we just, as you heard in the announcements, we shared uh, that we have our mission trip schedule released. So we're taking trips to Puerto Rico. We're going to uh, Cuba. Uh, we have two trips planned for Cuba. We're going to Haiti. We're going to Bahamas. There's a number of trips planned for next year where you can be involved. Some are great for children. And so please go to westpines.org missions. Find a way so that you can shine a light around the world as well. So here's what uh, I want to just wrap up our time with. Uh, the, the neat thing about this series really is that there are churches all around that are talking about this same idea. And one of the, the, the behind-the-scenes things that's happening is pastors are networking with each other to help each other. And one pastor in particular, he was on the video earlier. His name is Pastor David Hughes uh, from Church by the Glades. He was sharing about how he was so excited for this week in particular in Unsinkable. And he talked about this, and this convicted me so much. He said, you know, a, a lot of Christians, they'll say, well, you know, they think they're really deep. I'm a mature Christian, you know, I like to look really deep into the Bible and know all these deep parts. I like to look in the obscure parts of the Bible, study those. And he says, this pastor, he says, what I like to say when people kind of confront me in that way is I, I usually ask them, well, when's the last time you, you were telling someone about Jesus or inviting someone to church? Tell me about how you're on mission right now. Because when you look at the Bible, at the New Testament that you love and you're really deep in, you can't escape the reality that if you're a deep, mature Christian, you're on mission. In fact, you can't be a mature Christian if you are not on mission. And so he said this, my, my, I'm, I'm just like convicted to the core, hearing him say this, and, and man, that is so true. It's like we can be uh, quarterbacks who study the playbook all day, and we are all into analytics, and we look into statistics about this, and situations that might happen on the field and we just geek out and spend all of our waking hours studying the playbook and knowing all the details and knowing how defenses are going to scheme against us. And when the coach turns to us and says, okay, it's game time, get in the game. Imagine if the quarterback says, no coach, I'm, I'm too deep for that. I'm going to stay here studying the playbook. I'm going to stay here examining these statistics. I want to look at why this deep down thing here is so true. And the, the coach is like, no, like, get in the game. The playbook is for the game. And so many times as followers of Christ, the mature among us, we can slip into this place where we get so much in our little bubble that we forget that God has given us a mission to get the message of Jesus out. What's so beautiful about being on mission is that you can be a brand new follower of Jesus who has been following Jesus for 30 seconds. And with the Holy Spirit in you and your testimony of how Jesus has saved you, you can be a missionary, a witness for Jesus. And sometimes it's those who are brand new followers of Jesus who set the pace. Hey, let's seize this season that we're finding ourselves in. Let's let this gospel loose in our city and see to it that this Christmas season, the loudest voice is going to be the message of Jesus amidst all the competing voices. Uh, there's this gentleman who uh, 
was an evangelist in the 1900s, and his name was John Harper. And John Harper was someone who he preached the gospel, and he went to cities, and he shared the message of Jesus with people, and invited people to put their faith in Jesus. John Harper got on a boat to sail the Atlantic Ocean across the Atlantic to come over to the United States, and he actually sailed on a ship. So here's a picture of John Harper. Uh, That is the Titanic. And John Harper boarded the Titanic. He got on board. And of course, you know the story. The Titanic hits an iceberg and starts to sink. And there are accounts from survivors of the sinking of the Titanic who describe John Harper and who had seen him. And so John Harper apparently took his daughter and his sister who were on the ship with him. He put them in a lifeboat, made sure that they were safe. Then he went and took a life vest and he went out and he started talking to anybody and everybody as the ship is going down, asking people, are you saved? And he'd ask them that question. He'd say, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust in Jesus and your life will be saved. You'll be restored to a relationship with God. So he goes from person to person telling as many people as he can until the boat finally goes down and he's in the water. And so he's swimming in the water frantically. And those few minutes that you have to survive, I mean, it's seconds that you can survive in those temperatures. And so he's frantically swimming with life, literally wasting away from him, swimming to people and asking them, do you know Jesus? He comes across this one gentleman who at a survivor's meeting told his story. About four years after the Titanic sunk, a survivor's meeting took place. And this man talks about how John Harper came up to him and asked him if he knew, he was, if he knew Jesus. And the man said, no, I do not. John Harper took his life vest off and handed it to this man. And as John Harper was trying to tread water and stay up, he said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And this man who took John Harper's life vest and survived, right then and there, he described to those in the survivor's meeting, he said, I was John Harper's last convert before he sank and went away to be with his father in heaven. I want you to think about what would cause a man to instinctually see to it that once his daughter and sister were safe, that his first move would be telling as many people as he can possibly come to that Jesus is the one who can bring true salvation, that their deepest need is not to survive this sinking ship, but their deepest need is to know their Savior. This is an urgent mission. This is good news that we have, that God has made a way to rescue and redeem humankind to the person of Jesus. And we have the privilege, we have the privilege of coming in the footsteps of men like John Harper, who with this conviction and passion for this mission, say, you know what? Our lives, we know where we're going. Let's give our lives for what counts. Let's give our lives to see, see to it that we can clear the way so that more and more people can know the one who can give us an unsinkable faith. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you love us and have given us this great purpose. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a church and a people that are engaged on your mission. Help us to not retreat into the background and get comfortable in our chairs, but that as we go out into the city, as we go into our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces, that we would be your representatives. Lord, I pray right now for anyone in this room that doesn't have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray for those who right now, they don't know if they're saved. Lord, would you right now in this moment 
Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin and show them their need for a Savior. In fact, if that's you, with everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed in a quiet moment, you can just pray and say something like this to God. If you want to put your trust in Jesus, say, God, today I put my trust in you. I believe Jesus died for me and rose for me. Help me to follow you with my life. And if that's you, in this moment, this is that moment where you turn to Jesus, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for this mission that you've given us. Help us to be people who live in a way that brings you honor and glory and that makes the name of Jesus famous right here in South Florida and to the ends of the earth. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.